0: Anyone remember... Now, th- this goes back, and, and I realize that. Anyone remember the show, Wait Till Your Father Gets Home? There's a cartoon. I, I don't remember the show, but I remember the intro to the show and dad driving home and, and, you know, mom and the kids, and the kids suddenly being scared and needing to get in line because they were misbehaving. I can remember not just that show growing up, I can remember mom saying that growing up. When I... When I, I mean, when my brother and sister did something wrong... And um, no, when, when I would do something wrong or, or not do something I was supposed to do, at some point, if I pushed my mom too far, the words came out, we're going to let dad deal with this when he gets home. And I knew, I knew at that point, I had crossed the line of no return. And this was not going to go well for me that night. Now, now, what happened, now I, I know some kids may act up even more. For me, my strategy, and this is my mind, for me, my, my idea was I am going to do everything I can to make sure mom forgets. And so I'm going to be the best son she has ever had for the rest of the day. I'm going to do my chores, I'm going to do extra chores and be all loving and obeying. Why? So I won't get in trouble. Yeah, it was very utilitarian. Um, but dad's coming home, and so there's an accountability with dad coming home. Uh, we do the same thing with our kids. There's times that, and, and now we have different technology. So Susie might say, "We're going to call your father," or "We're going to Skype your father right now," and boom, their attitudes change. Really interesting how that happens. Today we get into the the first of two weeks as we wrap up Second Corinthians, where where Paul has been. Helping this church along, we've seen reconciliation. We've seen the church start to be transformed from some of the sin that they were in. But the church at Corinth is in a tough place. They're in an ungodly world trying to live for God, just like we are. And Paul here is coming to the end of, of his arguments, and he, he's, he's going to pour out his heart in, in the next two chapters. Pour out his heart for what he wants for them. How he wants them to respond to his love, to his admonitions. And and so today he's going to go there. He's going to say, I'm coming. I'm coming for a visit. And I'm letting you know so you can fix some things before I get there. Which is why the title today is Wait Till Your Dad Gets Home or Wait Till Your Father Gets Home. Paul is the spiritual father of this church. He founded this church. And he's letting them know I'm coming this week and next week. We're going to continue that. But this week, as he talks about his ministry, he sort of preps them for it a little bit. he, He preps them, and I'll give you sort of the outline of the morning right up front. He preps them by starting to say, this is the source of my legitimacy. This is the source of my ministry. It's that it's from God. Not all the things you're thinking of. And he's been defending himself to this church, trying to make things right. And in the end, he says, it's actually from God, and you know that. And so your actions should have reflected that. And then he shares with them his heart for them, a heart that loves them deeply and wants them to follow God. And then he says, "I'm coming," and he holds them accountable. And he says, there, "Here's some things that I want you to work on before I come." Turn with me to Second Corinthians chapter 12, verses 11 through 21. Second Corinthians chapter 12. And there's a couple of different ways I want to look at this text. We can look at it from the perspective of the Corinthians. And we can learn so much to make sure we don't fall into the same patterns as the Corinthians. But I also want to look at it from the perspective of Paul. And what example is he setting? In Ephesians, he has said that we are all ministers. That God has given pastors and teachers to equip the body for ministry. And so when we look at Paul's heart for ministry, that should be our heart. Because everyone sitting in this room is in ministry. We are all ministering to each other and reaching out to each other and serving each other. And so we want to look at Paul's example as we go through this too. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, starting at verse 11. We're picking up right after Paul talking about his thorn in the flesh. And this is the end of that fool's speech where he said, it's foolish, but I have to defend myself a little bit. Some people call this, this paragraph the epilogue to that speech. And he's wrapping it all up. And so we're going to see just a lot of different things that he brings in this week and next as he wraps up this book to the, to the Corinthians. But We start with verses 11 through 13. I have been a fool. You forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Oh, forgive me this wrong. And we see right from the start, Paul is going to the source of his ministry, to the legitimacy of his ministry, and showing that even though they were following these other false teachers, and those false teachers would say, Oh, Paul, he's not really legitimate. He's not really of God. He was out to get you. Paul is saying, No, my ministry was confirmed by God. It is legitimate because God validated it. And so point number one, the source there, the source of Paul's ministry was God making it legitimate. And they should have stuck with him. That's his answer. And so we see in this passage some some statements of of truth. We also see some chastisement from Paul. And so so right up front he says, I've been a fool because he doesn't like to brag like this. He doesn't like to to have to share his credentials and, and all of the reasons they should follow him. But he says, you forced me to do it, for I ought to have commended, been commended by you. He's saying, you guys were my friends. You guys saw ministry. You guys were saved because I was ministering to you. You should have had my back. You should have stood by me. You should have been the ones that were saying, no, Paul's a true apostle because of this and this and this. And so he starts with a little bit of a chastisement. He says, if you had understood, he's he's saying, if you understood my ministry and what God was doing, you should have stood up and commended me. But they misunderstood his ministry and they allowed others to come in and and, and turn them away really in so many ways. As we look at these verses, we we see several things. The first, for I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. Nothing. And we see Paul's, Paul's humility coming out here. And super apostles, some say maybe that was the 12, but most likely in context here, I, I think definitely it was the false teachers who were presenting themselves as these super teachers, these super apostles. And Paul's saying, you think I'm inferior to them. You think that they are so much greater because they speak so much better and, and we're going to find out because they took your money. So I'm not really sure how that makes them better. And that's going to be Paul's argument. But they've convinced you that I'm nothing. And he says, I am nothing. Even though I am nothing. And we see his humility to say, no, I'm, 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 I'm not inferior to them, I'm not less with them, but I'm nothing before God. And we see that they've misunderstood that humility. They've taken Paul's humble way and, and, and him not forcing himself on them. And they've actually bought into someone else that would. Others that were more charismatic Others that were putting themselves out there. But they misunderstood it. So there's a balance here that Paul is walking between being humble, but also defending truth. And both are true and both are needed. And so here he's defending truth a little bit. He's going to say why in the last paragraph. But we also still see his humility. In verse 12, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience with signs and wonders and mighty works. And the Corinthians had lost truth of, had lost sight of the truth of his message. They had lost sight of the truth of his message. They forgot that it was confirmed by God. He was a true apostle with a message from God. And he had given all the signs of a true apostle. He had done that with patience. You see his character there. Added to that were signs, wonders, and mighty works that further showed that he was an apostle. And and the signs, wonders, and and mighty works, those all worked together. Signs being more the confirmation of the message. And, And wonders were things that would evoke awe. And mighty works, things that would display God's divine power. It was God putting his thumbprint on Paul's ministry and saying, this is true. This is my servant. Listen to him. But they were so quick to follow other voices. And so Paul's calling him on it. You should have commended me. You misunderstood my humility. I'm not inferior. You misunderstood the, stood the truth of the message. And these are things that God uses to validate a new work, that he used often to validate the apostles' ministries. And then he goes on in verse 13. For in what, in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches? So the idea is they were looking around and they're like, you know what, we, th- we think he doesn't like us as much. Yeah, that's a winning argument. That, that's something we can prove. He, we, we don't think he likes us as much because he didn't burden us by, by asking for our money. And this is what happens when, when, when we start comparing and when we start to have this, this idea of someone, hey, isn't this true? Someone someone offends us and then all of a sudden we have this idea of them and we can build a whole case against them. And the case is silly at times, but we're filtering everything through that and that's what they're doing with Paul. They lost sight of his sacrifice, of his willingness to put others first. Paul intentionally sacrificed and didn't become a burden to them and now they're using it against him. I know verse 13 is just dripping with irony really were you less favored because i didn't demand your money that actually shows that you were, that i love you and he's exposing their twisted thinking it is it is just never a good thing to get into comparisons and they're comparing themselves to other church well well he loved the macedonians enough to take their money and they're missing the whole point of why paul has chosen to do what he's doing they're jumping to conclusions about his character and they're somehow twisting it. And comparisons are just never good when it comes to finances. Think about at work if, if the payroll data became public. Yeah, there, there would be all kinds of problems and there would be mayhem. Except maybe here because you all vote on it and it is public. <laughs> um, because we start to compare. And our, our hearts are, are self-centered. Our hearts are desperately wicked. And so we start to say, well, so-and-so is making it more than me. Or, or so-and-so gets this. And that's essentially what the church at Corinth was doing. And some were trying to say, don't listen to Paul because of what he's doing to you. See, the source of Paul's ministry was God. And he, he begins by confirming that with them because that's the foundation. God has legitimized my ministry. They know that he started this church. They know that he proclaimed a gospel that saved them out of sin. He spent a year and a half with them. But they were easily swayed. Easily moving to the flavor of the month. And we can do the same thing. With teachers, with with pastors, with whatever. I I know there's tons of podcasts out there and, and tons of different ways that you can hear speakers. And a lot of them are really, really good. But Paul's saying, remember that I have ministered to you remember that God has done something in this body through me. And he's reminding them that he's their spiritual dad. And so we want to be careful. We want to be careful of just going to the latest, greatest teaching and going to and so, sometimes some of the teachings out there, and we've talked about this, are just really awful. Some of them are false teaching, but they sound so good. And they're so appealing. And we have to be careful to compare everything to truth. Is this from God? Or is this from man? When I think of village and I think of Paul's command, I ought to have been commended by you, I really think that, that we are some of the luckiest pastors in the world because this church stands by us and we stand together, and the support when something happens, the the, the prayer support, the encouragement, the the times where I've made really bad decisions. And you haven't fired me. (laughs) It's a good thing. You have commended us well. And thank you for that. The the church at Corinth didn't. And so Paul's calling him on it. And saying, you should treat me better. Not out of self-centeredness, but because this is God's work. And then we get to the next paragraph, 14-17, through which is just such a beautiful passage on what a ministry heart looks like. And... Paul shares his heart. He shares why he has done what he's done. And and so the the point there is this is the heart. He's given the source of the ministry. This is the heart of his ministry. Paul gives us a challenging example of a ministry heart that loves people. Paul gives us a challenging example of a ministry heart that loves people. His ministry is, is unselfishly loving. It's selfless. And this is where I really want us to catch his example and understand. Sometimes I've talked with other pastors, and one of the questions that can come up is, how do we pass on a ministry heart? How do we describe what that is? And I'm not just talking being willing to help, and and that's a good thing, but a heart that is, is burdened and motivated as a ministry heart. And I think Paul does a marvelous job here of describing what that looks like. In verse 14... Here for the third time, I am ready to come to you. And the word here, some of your translations may translate that behold. I I think "beholds" a better word for it because it's a a stronger word. Rather than here, I'm coming again. It's it's, I'm coming again. Behold, pay attention. Dad's coming home. Get some things right. But he starts by sharing his heart before he gets into what they need to get right. For the third time, I'm ready to come to you. And this is, I loved one author, called it imminent accountability. I'm coming and I'm going to check. We know that in AD 50, he went and he founded the church at Corinth on a missionary journey, his second missionary journey. And then in 54, roughly spring of 54, he made a painful visit there. And we saw that in chapter 2, and he referred to that. And this painful visit where he tried to correct them didn't go well, and he was basically thrown out and, and rejected. Then he wrote... He, then he sent some guys and, and then wrote Second Corinthians here. And now he's hoping to come again uh, roughly a year later. Hoping it's a joyful visit, but willing to confront if need be. Dad's coming home. And then he goes on and, and shares his heart. And I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. He uses an example. But what a phrase. I'd underline that. I seek not what is yours, but you. It's not about your stuff. It's not about your money. That's not what I want. I want you. I want a relationship with you. I want your heart to be sold out to God. And that first bullet, bullet point there is he sees a relationship as more important than stuff. A ministry heart sees relationships as more important than stuff. And, if, and, and on each of these, I want us to think, okay, how does this work out at Village? If I'm a minister, as every believer is a minister, how do I develop a ministry heart? And we've got to begin desiring relationships above all else. It, ministry is always relational. I don't care if you're sweeping up or putting away chairs, people are more important. And so Paul says, I seek not what is yours, but you. And he uses a parenting metaphor, and, and Paul often does this because he, he most often compared ministry to being a parent, a mom or a dad. For him, a dad. When I think of pastoring, I think of what does it mean to be a father? And, and don't, don't start calling me Father Ron. That, that's, not, that's not what I'm saying. So when I make decisions as a pastor of what I should do, what I should spend my time on, one of the best ways to make that decision isn't what is most optimal or what will save us the most money, but I try to think, what would a dad do? What would a dad do? How would a dad respond to that? And so Paul here uses the parents as an idea, and he says, children are not obligated to save up for the parents, but parents for their children. And he's, he's talking about young children here because we know from other scripture, older children as parents age are to take care of their parents. The Pharisees were called out on that by Jesus. But he's talking, the, the word here is younger children. You know, I don't go to my kids and say, I'd like all the money that you got for Christmas and for your birthday because I'd like to take the family out to dinner. I, I have never done that. Now, I've jokingly said that and got some really interesting responses. No way, Dad. Why should I pay for dinner? Because you're the dad. And they get it. Right? And and they they get it. I don't rely on them to pay for my family dinners. I remember one time, my my dad's not here so I can say this. Don't tell him I said this. One time we all went out to eat and I, I snuck and talked to the waitress and said, I'd like to pay for my parents' dinner and paid for my parents' dinner. It wasn't a special occasion. Just, just to appreciate I love them, appreciation. Dad pulled me aside afterwards and said, Son, don't ever do that again. <laughs> 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 That's not how it works. Because he loved me and, and wanted as a dad to do that for me. Now that I have kids, I get that. I get it. That's what Paul's saying. He says, "Really, do you think I'm about your money? Do you think I need you to support me?" No, I'm here for you. I don't expect you to be here for me." Now there is a mutuality. I understand that, and there's a, a joint care. But wow, to be able to say, "I seek not what is yours, but you." Moms, dads, so what if we really put that into practice with our kids? said, I seek a relationship with you above all else because I love you. I'm willing to show grace. I'm willing to be inconvenienced for you because I love you. You know, when we think of a ministry heart that values relationships more important than stuff, that's really pertinent on a church campus. And, and it's really hard. There's times I walk around and I see broken things and I get really frustrated. Like, I can't believe that. I remember one pastor telling me early on in in my pastoral ministry at a conference I was at, he said, what if you started looking at every broken thing with a different perspective? What if you looked and said, some ministry happened here this week? Someone was loved here this week. And, And what he was doing is trying to train me to see relationships and ministry as more important than stuff. We get caught up in stuff. But people are what's important. The questions we ask or should ask is what will reach their heart. What will build relationship? That's how we choose what we do. For I seek not what is yours, but you. And I don't even think that's the best quote in this passage. We're getting to the next one. Verse 15. Paul says, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. And that's the memory verse I put in the worship folder. That's what a ministry heart looks like. That's the heart of ministry. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. And that bullet point is gladly give sacrificially of resources and self to reach others. Gladly give sacrificially of resources and self to reach others. It's willing to be put out for others, to reach others, to build relationship, to minister to others. You know, the words Paul uses there, the first one I will most gladly spend, that was a financial word. And he's saying, I'll give everything I can. I'll gladly give if it means reaching you. You know, for us, maybe it's gladly taking someone out to coffee or gladly taking someone out to lunch or gladly meeting a need they have. It's saying my resources aren't, as same as the first point, my resources aren't as important as you. But then he goes on and he expands it. He says, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. And the be spent, that's no longer a financial aspect. That's a pouring out of self. I will be willing to be exhausted for your soul. To sacrifice self. You know, Christ gave us this example, didn't he? In Second Corinthians eight, nine, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And Paul is just carrying that on. When we come on Sundays, when we come on Wednesdays to Iwana, whenever we're together and we're ministering to others, can we say, I will gladly spend and be spent? to minister to each other here. Look around for just a minute. Look around. This is the family. This is the church family God has placed you in. This is the family that we need to, all of us, everyone, be able to say, I will gladly spend and be spent for that person sitting next to me, for that person sitting in front of me, behind me. I'd like to just say this verse together. Will you repeat it with me? I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Say it one more time. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. There is nothing better in ministry to have that kind of heart. See, it affects everything we do. If, if, if we come here and we're just doing a job as fast as we can so we can get on to the next thing, that's not gladly being spent for relationship, for ministry. It's not a ministry heart. There's times that we're willing to serve, but we're not willing to minister. And there's a difference. Are we willing to be inconvenienced for the good of the other person? And I pray that we are. And This affects how we approach time here, how we approach our attitude in ministry. This affects what we choose to do as a church. The question is: should should always be, what is the best way to reach the people involved? What will show them that we love them? That's the question we ask when we decide to do something. And, and, and I know la- the larger the church, the harder it is, because you have policies and precedents, and you have to abide by those, and, and those aren't particularly biblical. How will we reach people? How will we love people? That's the bottom line. People are more important than policy. Always should be. And we we could never lose sight of a ministry heart that prioritizes loving people. I I love working with our boards and the leadership here because they get it. They get it. And Lorraine and I talk a lot. Sorry, Lorraine. Talk a lot. Her first question is always, how will this reach them? How will this show them that we love them? That's a ministry heart. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. And then the very next phrase, he goes into a ministry heart, ministers out of love. He says, If I love you more, am I to be loved less? And we see that, that he's just loving them more and more and willing to pour it. Now he's, he chastises them a little bit with this. And he says, Really, I'm loving you more and more. Does that mean you should love me less? Really? Any parent understands this, don't you? You love your kids. You pour into their lives. Do they always reciprocate that love? Every morning is it, thank you, Mom and Dad. I love you. I love the discipline. I love the structure. I I love that you make me do what I need to do. I don't get that a lot at home. Maybe I'm weird. Maybe our family's just really messed up. I haven't heard a lot of families that get that. Do you still love your kids, mom and dad? Yeah. And Paul's using that as his example. Again, a lot of these examples come out of parenting, him, him being a spiritual dad. And he's like, am I to be loved less? As my love increases, does your love really decrease? And he's doing two things. He's affirming his love. But he's also chastising them and saying, maybe you need to love back. Not just maybe, you need to love back. But a ministry heart ministers out of love, even if it's not returned. So a ministry heart sees relationships more important than stuff. It gives sacrificially of resources and self, ministers out of love even if it's not returned. And finally, 17 and 18, a ministry heart works past false accusations, even if they hurt. 17 and 18, actually 16, 17 and 18. But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. I'm going to add my own word in. Really? Did I take advantage of you through one of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? And we have to understand a little bit of what's going on here. And we've talked about it. We've talked about the collection that they were taking a collection for the saints, uh, especially for Jerusalem. And he was asking them to give. But he, he was so above reproach that he asked other people to come and collect it. And it was a, a combination, someone from Macedonia, someone that the Corinthian church knew, and Titus, who they grew to, grew to respect. But the accusation here, and not everyone's making it, but some are making this accusation. What it looks like is what they're saying is, okay, we know why you didn't take money from us. You're a con man. And, and you were earning our trust so you could get more of our money in the collection. We know exactly what you're doing. You you're still, still have evil intentions. For Paul, who has gladly spent and been spent for them, that had to sting. That had to hurt. One author p- paraphrased his verse to say, but rather, devious me, I bamboozled you by fraud. And Paul addresses it. He brings it up, which is a great principle. He doesn't just ignore it. And he says in 17, Did I take advantage of you through those I sent to you? And he calls them on it. He says, You know the guys. You picked one of them. Did I take advantage of you? Did they take advantage of you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? The church loved Titus, it looks like. And they would say, No, well, no, he didn't. He says, didn't we act in the same spirit? Weren't we on the same page? Did we not take the same steps? And they had come to false conclusions about him based on their filter. Based on what they wanted to believe instead of truth. And Paul says it's not true. But what's interesting to me is that kind of thing I think might have stopped many of us from ministry. I'm done with them. I'm angry at them. I'm frustrated with them. Let God judge them. I mean, deal with them. And Paul says, I love you. I would gladly be spent for your soul. I seek not what is yours, but you. Do you get his heart? A heart that puts people more important than stuff, more important than policy, more important than anything else. How Am I going to reach someone for Christ? What a great example. And then we get to the third point, the goal. In the last paragraph of this chapter, and Paul comes now, I'm coming, he says. He he comes to it. The goal, Paul's desire is to find them walking with God when he returns and holds them accountable. See, ministry and prioritizing people doesn't mean being all ooey-gooey and never confronting sin. Actually, if you love somebody, you won't let sin go unchecked in their life because where does that lead them? To destruction. It leads them down paths that are horrid for their lives. And so Paul's, I love you, I'm willing to be spent for you, and I'm willing to hold you accountable. Verse 19. Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? And when I first read that, I'm like, sort of sounds like that, Paul, all this time. But he's getting back to why he's doing it. It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ. And all for your upbuilding, beloved. What a great verse on his goal, his intentions. He's saying, I've said what I've said before God. I'm comfortable saying it before God. He is the one that I want to please. And all of this has been for your upbuilding. And they use the beloved, dear ones. Because he loves them. And and we see Paul's real motivation here. It wasn't that his ego was bruised and so he had to defend himself. Can we get that way? Oh, someone has said something and, and wronged me or misunderstood me, so I need to defend myself. I need to prove that I'm right. What was Paul's... Ultimate goal. They're upbuilding. Edification. Same word we see in Ephesians four with gifts, that he's given all these gifts for the building up of the body. See, Paul knew if he let them follow the false teachers, that wasn't upbuilding. That was destruction. Paul knew that if he let them think the worst of him and invalidate his message, that also led to destruction. And so his, his point is, I, I didn't want to come in myself this way. This is, it's not Paul. But I'm willing to do it for you because this is what is best for you. You need to know the truth. And then he says, For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish. Let me paraphrase that. Paraphrase that. I'm coming. I'm really afraid that I'm not going to like what I see. And if that's the case, you're not going to like what you see. That's what he's saying. Not a threat, accountability. Because he loves them. And it's, 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 it's introed and prefaced with this is from God. That's the source of my ministry. That's the credibility of my ministry. I love you, but let's get some things right. He said the same thing in 1 Corinthians 4.21, similar thing. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? He wants to come back and find them walking with God. He doesn't want to find them disqualified for ministry. 2 Corinthians is all about restoration and rebuilding and, and equipping them for ministry. But at the end, he says, you need to be careful of these things. All things that we've seen the church struggle with. But he wants them to take a spiritual inventory. And he gives them some things to look at. It's a great list for us to take a spiritual inventory and say, are any of these things holding us back from ministry, disqualifying us from ministry? And so he says that perhaps, or that, and you may not find me as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. And we know that they struggled with quarreling. In 1 Corinthians 1.11, he said, For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you brothers. And he goes on to say, because some were saying, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas. but well, we're better than you. We follow Christ. And people were quarreling, going at it with each other. Next one, jealousy. Again, we know the church struggled with that. Paul said, For you are still of the flesh in, in 1 Corinthians 3. For while there is jealousy and a strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Remember, Corinth was all about status. And and that's one of the reasons I think Paul didn't take their money because that would have said, this person has more status and I'm beholden to them. But all about status. And so they were jealous when someone else had more status. When someone else seemed like they were better off with Paul or Apollos. So there was quarreling. There was jealousy. You know, maybe for us that jealousy comes, well, that person got to do that ministry. Or that person seems like they're, they're really doing well and I'm not. Or that person gets credit and I don't. Those are things in the body. All, this whole list here is all about interpersonal relationships. Community life in the body. The next one that, that is mentioned is anger. Some translations say fits of anger, fits of rage. How quickly do we fly off the handle? How quickly do we fly off the handle at home or with people at church? Unfortunately, it seems like the people we're closest to, we feel freer to fly off the handle with. It destroys relationship, destroys community. Hostility is the next one. Some of your, your translations say selfish ambition or strife. Hostility towards each other because I want to lift myself up. What do you think of others in your heart? There's a question you can ask on this. What do you think of others when no one's around? Are there grudges? Is there a little bit of bitterness? A little bit of frustration? Village, there is no room for that in the body of Christ. No room. Because that's an unforgiving spirit that is holding on to things that Christ has already paid for. There's no room for hostility then Paul goes to two, two items on the, the sin that can happen in our speech. Slander, he says, which means evil speech or abusive language. Speech that tears down and destroys the reputation of another. How do we talk about each other as a church? How do we talk about someone that maybe has offended us or maybe does things differently than us? Slander can happen in our homes too. How do we talk about people at church behind closed doors when we think no one else is listening? That affects body life. Second thing Paul mentioned is gossip. It comes from the word to whisper. They're very similar to slander, except slander is more open, evil speech. Gossip is sort of in confidence saying things about someone else so you can turn other people around. Hey, did you, did you hear what Pastor Andrew did last week? Went to an A's game. That's just bad. No, (laughs) Gossip is these little whispers that tear at community and tear at body life. And then he goes to some of the sources of that or the source of all those conceit, which means to be inflated. I am better. I know more. So maybe in Sunday school class we look and say, well, that was a silly question that they asked. What are we really saying? I'm a lot better than them. I know more. I would never have asked that question. Or I wouldn't do it that way. That's a a statement of conceit, of self-centeredness. I know better. And so Paul's addressing all these things that were present in the church of Corinth, but man, isn't it a grace checklist for us? For body life? And he says, I'm going to check on these things when I get there. The last one, disorder. One author Defined it as relational upheaval or chaos caused by sinful patterns. Basically, it's what happens when we slander and gossip and are prideful and puffed up and hold on to grudges and anger. It creates disorder in the body instead of peace. Church at Corinth saw that in the Lord's Supper. Remember that? Some were just going on and having their feast, the rich people, and then the poor people could get the crumbs when they got there a little later. Disorder. Relational disorder. We saw it with gifts. Some were, were demanding the use of certain gifts and everyone had to have certain gifts and there was chaos because people were about themselves. Relationships matter. Words matter. One author, Joseph Telushkin, wrote a book, Words That Hurt, Words That Heal. And I love to quote out of that he would lecture on the impact of words, and I don't know if he's a Christian or not, but he makes an interesting point. He asks audiences if they can go 24 hours without saying any unkind words about another person or to another person. 24 hours. And, and invariably, a small number would raise their hands and say, yeah, I think I can do that. Others would laugh, he said, but most would say, well, no, actually, that'd be pretty hard to do. And think about that. Could you go 24 hours and say no unkind word to another Or about another? And this is the catch. He then says, those of you who can't answer yes must recognize you have a serious problem. If you can't go 24 hours without drinking liquor, you're addicted to alcohol. If you can't go 24 hours without smoking, you're addicted to nicotine. Similarly, if you you can't go 24 hours without saying unkind words about others, you've lost control over your tongue. Ouch. Ouch. Paul gives this list of eight things. He says, I'm coming to check on you. Can you be kind to one another? Can you love one another? Can you let go of hurts? Then he goes on. That's his first list. His second list is only three things, but he's dealing with purity issues with sexual issues that were in the church. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. And he's saying, when I come, I'm going to call you on it and I pray I don't have to mourn for your sins. I pray I don't have to be humbled to call you on the carpet for your sin, but I will. And he gives these three things that that give sort of a broad range of sexual sins. Impurity there means, uh, it's a broad term for moral corruption, especially sexual moral corruption, lewdness. So anything that has to do with that. Sexual immorality is a little narrower, and it it means unsanctioned sex of any kind, unsanctioned sexual activity of any kind outside of marriage. It's often translated fornication, but for whatever reason, we don't use that word anymore because I think it's just too guilt-inducing. Sexual immorality sounds so much easier. But the word for fornication is really any sexual activity outside of marriage. That's what sexual immorality means. And then sensuality is the the third one he used. Now, sensuality was a little bit different term, whereas sexual immorality was maybe between consenting adults and, and loving relationships Sensuality was what was happening in the temples and and the orgies and just letting go of your passions and going for it. And so Paul uses three these three words to really cover the whole gamut of sexual purity. And says, I pray, I pray that you've repented of those things. And we know that the church at Corinth struggled with that. There was incest, there was immorality that was happening without being checked. Singles were struggling with that and Paul urged them to get married if they struggled with that. But he's saying, I'm going to ask. And I pray you've repented of these things. And what do we do with these things? They're a checklist. But I want to end with a thought. Paul's not coming here. So, So we can't read this and say, Paul's going to be here next week. We better straighten out. But our Father is coming. And Jesus can return at any time. He could return today. He could return tomorrow. He could return next week. In Matthew twenty-two forty-two, 42, Jesus says, Therefore stay awake, be alert, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming... He would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you don't expect. Do we want Jesus to come back when there's all kinds of dissension between us? When we're arguing with each other? When when we're harboring anger? Maybe right when we're whispering to someone, did you hear about so-and-so? Do we want Jesus to come back when we haven't dealt with sexual sin. And and, and that that was a problem for the church at Corinth because it's such a powerful draw. Our accountability is both to each other, but also to God, that Jesus could come back at any time. And so Paul really wraps things up. He wraps things up by saying, this is the source of my ministry. God has validated it. God has shown it to be true through his signs, signs of an apostle, and then through signs, wonders, miracles. My heart is that I love you deeply. And may we follow that example that we put people as more important than stuff or things or anything else. And then finally, he's willing to hold them accountable. Are we willing to hold each other accountable? And do we even realize Jesus is coming and see that as accountability? section is all about ministry. Making sure it's from God, making sure our heart's right, making sure we're really trying to build each other up. May that be what we're about as ministry at Village. Let's pray. Lord God, as I think of these lists that Paul gave, Lord, help us to be doing well as a church. Help us to be loving each other and getting past things and bearing with one another and forgiving as you've forgiven us. Lord, if there are any grudges right now in our hearts, if there are any blocks to relationship in here, I pray that you would tear them down. That you would help us to acknowledge them for what they are, sin. And see what you want to do in a body of, of imperfect people who are going to hurt each other, but who are going to try to love each other. Lord, I pray on the area of sexual purity. Lord, this is something we don't talk about a lot in, Don't even know what happens behind closed doors. I pray for the sexual purity of this congregation. That marriages would be pure. That our singles would be pure. Lord, that Satan will not get his his grasp on people through that temptation. Lord, help us to hold each other accountable. To lovingly do that because we love them. Lord, may we be a church that is pure, without spot or wrinkle, that is pleasing to you for when you return. In Jesus' name, amen.